Uh, if, if you were here last week, we looked at Psalm 1, uh, which is a wisdom psalm, and our hearts were shaped to submit to God and His Word. Tonight's psalm, by contrast, is a psalm of praise. It praises God for who He is, and uh, it praises God, this God that we've been asked to submit to. It sings His praise uh, and tells us what He has done. Let's read about this God in Psalm 8. O Lord, our good Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray. Uh, Dear God, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Uh, Oh, I'll say this one thing also. Uh, If you have any questions, I think it's up. Yep, you can always text me. uh, And uh, I take a little bit of time at the end of each of these to answer questions you may have. They can be about the sermon or they can be just like, you know, as random as can be, uh, I'm having a fight with my roommate. What do you think I should do? Uh, they're completely anonymous. And I don't know who you are. So uh, that's like not my number. That's like a Google number that I'll look at later. Uh, okay. So in my favorite Disney Pixar movie, Toy Story, uh, a toy cowboy named Woody. Yeah. So yes, I love this movie. Uh, a toy cowboy named Woody uh, becomes very jealous of a, a, a different action figure called Buzz Lightyear. When he becomes the owner, uh, Andy, his favorite toy. So Woody uh, gets very jealous because originally he's Andy's favorite toy. He takes them everywhere. He plays with them all the time. Uh, He has this status amongst all the other toys of being the favorite. So he gets to call the shots. He's like the one in control. But then Woody, or sorry, Buzz comes along and he starts stealing the glory. And deeply frustrated with the loss of his favorite toy status, Woody decides to take matters into his own hands. Uh, He notices that a a magic eight ball gets stuck behind the desk that is in Andy's room, and he thinks to himself, I could get Buzz stuck back there, and then no one will ever find him again. Uh, But he uh, actually takes an RC car, borrows it. It's, It's sliding down. It's supposed to take out Buzz, but Buzz notices before it happens and like dodges out of the way. But in a sudden turn of events, uh, he, actually gets, he actually ends up getting knocked out of the window, uh, assumedly to his death, his doom. Uh, to Woody's surprise, uh, he is actually, his devotion to his status as being the favorite toy, uh, he has protected it so much that he has actually caused the death of another toy. Uh, Woody worshipped his status, and it shaped him into somebody who could turn Uh, who could hurt another toy if it meant he could hang on to that status, if he could hang on to that superlative that he cherished. Uh, This psalm is evidence that the Bible treats us in a very similar way. 
that we are shaped by the God we worship. Uh, this psalm is going to tell us who the true God is, but the reality is, uh, if you're here tonight, under the sound of my voice, you will worship something. Uh, it's not a question of if, but what. Uh, you may say, uh, I, you know, Nick, I'm an atheist, or I don't, uh, you know, I don't worship any sort of like idols or anything like that, so I don't know what you're talking about. But uh, let me submit to you this. If you worship status, for instance, like Woody does, uh, then you, your life will reflect the fact that you worship status. Uh, you'll see others' successes as threats to your own, and you'll categorize people by whether or not they can improve or uh, make worse your status. If you worship acceptance, if your God is, you just have to be accepted by other people, then your life will look like you worship acceptance. Uh, you'll start to mirror and copycat the God that you serve. Uh, you will see others as uh, uh, performance treadmills that will burn you out just trying to seek their approval. Uh, if you worship comfort, right, your life will look like comfort. Uh, people in need will become nuisances to you, and uh, you will actually turn your whole life into one giant demand from other people. Uh, worship control. Uh, if you worship control, you'll find your whole life is shaped by a search for that, and anxiety will creep in, depression will creep in. Uh, that's not that all, for the record, that's not saying that all depression is stemmed from this. That's a different subject entirely. But uh, it does mean that whatever you worship in all these situations, whatever has captured your heart and is what you're looking for out of life, that is going to shape who you are. It just, it's inevitably going to shape who you are. Um, and so it's important to worship the right God, uh, to look after the, the one thing, to, to make your life revolve around something that is going to make you into someone that you want to be. A Reformed theologian John Calvin wrote near the beginning of his books, uh, The Institutes of the Christian Religion. He said this about this. It is certain that man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face. So while I'll mainly be speaking about God, uh, this psalm is, uh, even though there's a ton of language about humanity in it, uh, it's actually mostly about God. Uh, there are implications for who we're created to be uh, buried in this psalm. So there's a lot at stake in worshiping the right God. Um, I encourage you, uh, here's what I want from you this evening. Uh, because the psalms are supposed to shape us, as you listen to this, I want you uh, to have open arms, to be receptive to this God, to think about um, this as the true God. What if, what if maybe this is really who it is that I, my whole life is supposed to be revolving around? Um, as we unpack this psalm, it's my hope that we'll discover three things about God. These are like three points if you're looking for them this evening. These are our three points. Uh, this is where we're going. God works through the week. Uh, God works through the week. God is mindful of man. Weak is like the powerless, not the like seven days. Uh, he also does that. But uh, God is mindful of man. God is mindful of man and God delegates dominion. Lots of W's, M's, D's. Works through the week, mindful of man, delegates dominion. Okay, so let's start with the first point. God works through the week. If you have one of these like little guys, I think the, the passage is printed on the back. Uh, it might be flashing behind me to you. I don't know. Oh, it's not going to be. Okay, that's okay. If you have one of these guys... Uh, it's printed for you. Let's start with the first point. God works through the week. Look with me at verse 1. Uh, 
the psalmist begins with what might seem like a repetitive statement in the English, right? Uh, the, um, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to look back at it. Uh, yes, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Uh, the first name for God is not actually Lord. Uh, it, it seems like it's, he's saying, O Lord, my Lord, but that's uh, probably a false understanding of, or not a great translation of it. God's revealed name, the Hebrew equivalent of that, like, Lower case, like lower case, but uppercase lettered uh, Lord is actually Yahweh. Uh, so it actually reads, O Yahweh, our Lord. Um, someone, uh, someone please shoot me a text as to why we translate four letters, Y-H-W-H, as Lord. And I would love to talk to you about that. Um, but it's not super pertinent for tonight. So I'm going to keep moving. So it actually reads, O Yahweh, our Lord. But the point there, uh, point is there that there is an exclusive possessive, possessive relationship with this God, right? Uh, in knowing Yahweh, oh, Yahweh, our Lord. Um, it's not that he's just a Lord or a God. Um, and it's not just that anybody is Lord. Um, actually, this psalmist uses God's uh, personal name to declare that he is his. Uh, the closest thing uh, we talk about in terms of possessing someone is probably like, you're like, oh, this is my bay, uh, so-and-so, or whatever. I don't know, what the, you guys still say bay? I know you guys don't say bay anymore, do you? Um, I don't know what you say, your boo, uh, your boo thing, um, the love of your life. It, there's, there's some aspect that when you're in relationship with someone, they become partly yours. Uh, and Yahweh uh, is not a god uh, like all the other gods. He has a specific name, um, but he is also the god of those who sing the psalm. Right? He is their God, and he's given them his name. But here's the crazy thing. He is real big, like really, really big. Higher praise could not be sung for Yahweh. This opening phrase, how majestic is your name in all the earth, it actually forms a Hebrew poetical device called a parallelism. You can kind of see how it, how it runs. How majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set glory above the heavens. Um, in the Hebrew, it's even more pronounced. Every word actually corresponds to a word in the line below it. What it does is it presents a, a, something called a merism, which is basically a combination of uh, words or merism. Uh, it's a combination of words, this time, it's name and glory, that are used to refer to a whole entity. Two seemingly unlike things that refer to one single person, and this time it's Yahweh. Uh, his name and glory both refer to him Earth and heaven then mark out two extremes, two extremes of all that Yahweh has created, and they are completely saturated with his name and his presence, the majesty of him. It's actually uh, incomprehensible how powerful and great such a God is, that he is both, his name both fills all the earth and the heavens, uh, farther than you and I can see or think about. Uh, But... That's what makes verse 2 so surprising. Look with me there. After he's talked about how huge this God is, how big he is, how other he is, uh, the Hebrew is a little jumbled here in verse 2, but, uh, and it makes the English hard to read, but what is clear is this. Um, oh, nice. Uh, is this, that uh, this great and powerful God uses the mouths of infants. Uses the mouths of uh, actually nursing infants, understood to be, like these defenseless and uh, the opposite of empowering entities, right? Um, it, nursing infants 
literally suck life from their mothers. Uh, that's the idea here, right? And these infants that are the opposite of strength, God is going to use to establish his strength, to yield himself praise. Uh, the strong, those who have the power to set themselves up as avengers, as people who take matters into their own, ta- own hands. Avengers, not in the good sense. Uh, as we read Avengers, we might think of like the Marvel guys, but this is not the same thing. Uh, this is like people who, instead of waiting for courts or other people to decide things, if you like accidentally hurt one of their donkeys, they would like murder your firstborn child, right? This is not the same person as like what we think of as like the good guys. Uh, These are terrible people with a lot of power. Um, They return evil with evil, evil, and they are enemies of God and his foes. And yet God says not that he's going to work through these people, uh, though in our eyes we might see that sometimes occurring. He says instead that he will work from people who are life takers, who are weak and defenseless. Probably the most obvious way God does this is actually exemplified in the life of Jesus, in Matthew 21, 12 through 16, there's this famous scene. You may have heard of it. It's when Jesus goes into the temple in Jerusalem and he's like flipping tables. Everybody loves this scene because it's like Jesus finally got mad. It's like, yes, like you've had so many opportunities to be angry and this is the moment you pick, but I'm, I'm here for it. it. Took you 21 chapters. Uh, so Jesus is flipping tables. He's so upset about the fact that people are exploiting the people who are there to worship God. Uh, you'd have to actually pay somebody to get like a chicken or you know, uh, a a cow or whatever it is that you wanted to sacrifice. You had to change money with somebody, get the things that you wanted to sacrifice and then sacrifice them there, which is contrary to the idea of, and you'd pay a premium for that too, which is contrary to the idea of like sacrifice where you are open and vulnerable before the Lord and it's not about how big or small your gift is. Of course, uh, those in charge... um, don't like this, and especially Jesus ends up healing a, like a paralytic, a man who can't walk, who's there, and a bunch of kids uh, were told that a bunch of little children start calling Jesus the son of David and praising him as God the king, and the scribes and Pharisees don't like that. They confront him in verse 16, and they say to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read, and he quotes verse 2 of this psalm, out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. Uh, Jesus is highlighting something true about the way God works, that he doesn't work through big, powerful people. Instead, he chooses the lowly, uh, these children who in ancient society could not contribute to the household economy and were literally like just sucks on the system. Uh, these people Jesus chooses to dignify, and instead the proud and the haughty the people who think they're religious and good, who are important in their day, Jesus chooses to shame, to, uh, to actually humble them. Uh, he honors the lowly, and he uh, brings low the honored. Maybe you're here tonight, and that's, that's you. You're the lowly. Uh, you've walked in tonight, and you feel small and insignificant and frail, uh, and you feel like you're nobody to anybody. Uh, Maybe this is you because you feel you're too sinful for God. If he really knew all the things that you did, or if you're really honest with any of us about the way that you live your life, we would reject you, or he would reject you, or maybe you're too socially awkward uh, to function and you can't get acceptance, you can't find friends, or whatever it is for you, or maybe um, you're too anxious to perform well in school, or you think you're too dumb, or whatever it is, 
you think you're too whatever to be important to God. Uh, and here's the good news. Here's what I want you to hear tonight, if that's you. You're exactly the kind of person God wants. Let me say that again. You are exactly the kind of person God wants. Uh, he comes after the meek and lowly. Um, this Yahweh, who is incomprehensibly powerful, chooses to make his allies, his, his friends, his people out of the weak. Um, he wants to give you the significance you're longing for. Not all the other things that make you feel small and insignificant, but rather him, the only, the only entity, the only being, the only God in the universe who, will, who can actually give you the significance you long for. If you're empty, he wants to fill you up. And while the psalmist uh, only had the Old Testament exodus as proof, right? Uh, God takes a little country uh, called Israel that's not even a country uh, under the weight and oppression of Egyptian slavery, and he rescues them out of that bondage. Uh, This psalmist looks at that as proof, right, that God will care and does favor the little guy. How much more so do we actually have reason to believe that God favors the little guy, that he has not forgotten the lowly and the meek, Uh, than in Jesus Christ. Uh, We have Jesus dying on a cross for a bunch of people who do not deserve it, Uh, people who are cursing him, and uh, and all of us in our own ways have walked our own way, chosen our own paths, and yet he dies for us. Uh, There is no greater evidence that God makes his his alliance and his care uh, toward people who do not deserve it. Um, But also... Uh, these first two verses should serve as a warning to those of us who are proud, uh, who think even because of our Christianity, even because, man, I came to RUF tonight. I'm a good person. (laughs) I did really good. Uh, I know my person in my math class that I invited didn't come here tonight, but I did, and that means I actually care about God and not this other person. Beware of uh, what sounds like piety, what sounds like you uh, being dedicated to God, but that's really hiding pride. That's really spiritual pride that says, I am better, I have strength, I'm important uh, because I have done so much, because I care. Um, this status, uh, this, uh, these two verses ought to uh, be flashing red lights to those of us who think um, we've somehow arrived. Uh, instead, we should uh, return to being lowly. <laughs> But uh, is God just, uh, a, this raises the question, is God like a, a puppet master a little bit? Um, if he's really like as majestic and powerful as these first two verses are saying, and he's like kind of just coming after like weak and uh, powerless people, um, and uh, his whole thing is, his whole endeavor is to make his glory known in all uh, stretches of the universe, um, it would make you think he must be very distant. We must be like just kind of like chess pieces to him, and he's kind of disinterested and just kind of like moving us around the board. Uh, and this brings us to our second point, that God is mindful of man. Look with me at verses 3 through 4. Uh, here the psalmist actually works in reverse order of verse 1, uh, whereas in verse 1 his gaze is taken from the earth and then lifted up past the heavens. Here, the opposite happens. He is gazing at the night sky. You can almost envision the psalmist literally standing as the, you know, maybe the sun is setting or he has a lamp or whatever. And he's inspired to write this psalm by what he sees as he looks up at the night sky. And as he looks at the night sky, it actually draws him downward to the earth. 
to humanity's little outpost. Um, he can look and see all of these stars, and he starts to think to himself, man, what are we? I am this insignificant speck. Uh, the psalmist kind of pictures God as setting place the moon and stars with his fingers. This is a poetic license he takes. God doesn't actually have fingers, but he takes uh, and he puts the moon and stars uh, up in the sky with, those, with the proverbial fingers. And again, uh, we must come to terms with how grandiose this vision is of God. Uh, to treat the moon and stars like we would macaroni and glue on the construction paper. Like that is, that is the picture we get, that he like places the moon and stars in the heavens. And you might draw the conclusion from this that God really is just too big to worry about us, uh, that he has bigger matters to attend to than some piece of macaroni. And the worst part is it's actually not even macaroni because if you think about you, then if the moon and stars are macaroni, then that makes you like dust on the macaroni, like a small speck, right? Uh, and uh, that, that might make you feel like God probably doesn't care about you at all. Yeah, he might have a plan. He orders everything. But does he really like see me or care about me? Uh, that's, that's actually the opposite conclusion. The, the crazy thing is that's actually the opposite thing that the psalmist is going to... Uh, come to, the opposite conclusion to which he's going to come to. The right inference from God being uh, orderly in the heavens of his uh, creating everything in in order is not his remoteness, but actually his attention to detail. Uh, Isaiah will make a similar point in uh, chapter 40, verses 26 through 31. Uh, He says like this, lift up your eyes on high and see who created these, namely God, that's who created them. Who, he who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because of his strong power, not one is missing. So he's doing the same thing the psalmist says. He's looking at the stars. He's saying, God is so great. And then he says this, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? He's chastising the people of God as, uh, who say, like, he's so big, he probably doesn't even notice me. He says this, Have you not known... Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even you shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. The idea here is that uh, actually the more uh, faint and the more undiscoverable and the more lowly you become, actually God is uh, interested in the details. He is interested in uh, those who think God can't see them. God's ability to order the universe should actually drive us uh, to comfort, that his ability to, like, that he has the ability to control our circumstances. Uh, when we might otherwise feel neglected, um, it should be a comfort to us that uh, God has ordered the universe in such a way that even the smallest things, not just the big things, but even the smallest things are under his jurisdiction. Uh, there's a trope of this in, in movies and TV where there's like a TV character. This happens in my favorite show, The uh, Boy Meets World, with Sean Hunter. Um, I don't know if any of you guys watch It's on Hulu. Uh, you can watch it. It's also on Disney Plus now. Uh, they might have taken it off Hulu, but it's on Disney Plus. So. Uh, there's the scene where a teacher has wrecked his bike, and this happens a lot. Uh, the character goes in, he's like seeing the person that's on their like, 
deathbed kind of thing. And he looks up at the ceiling. And he's like, God, I know you're probably pretty busy, but, you know, and we don't talk very often, but uh, I just would hope you'd make a little time for this. Will you please help my friend or whatever it is uh, in the situation? But here's the reality. That's the opposite of the point that this, this psalmist is reaching. It's the opposite of the point that Isaiah is preaching to us. It's that actually because God is so powerful, you can take it one of two ways. You could say God doesn't care about me. The other way of saying it is that like God is so powerful that nothing you can do is outside of his purview, uh, that he cares. Um, that's why he asked the question, who is man that you are uh, mindful of him? Uh, and it's a rhetorical question, right? He goes on to say that like God does all these things with man is crowned to him. Uh, God is not indifferent to him. And the reality is this, God is not indifferent to you. Uh, Maybe you've wandered in tonight and you're like, look, uh, I keep looking for God to show up in certain circumstances. I keep feeling like I miss him every time. I I think he should be helping me with my roommate situation, with my studies, with my grades, with my job, and everything keeps falling through. And I just don't know if God is really for me. Uh, what we can say from this psalm is that, uh, is that the same God who put the stars in the sky is at work in your life. Uh, that, that the same God who orders the heavens, who treats them like macaroni on a construction paper, uh, that God is actually in control of everything. And then if you submit to him, you place your faith in him, uh, he will work your life uh, for good. That he is mindful and cares uh, the language there is not just that, like, uh, God is aware of man, but that he's mindful, uh, that he thinks about us. Um, but the, the psalmist does ask the question, what is man? In such a vast universe, what is it about God, or what is it about how God created man that makes him mindful of us? Why does he do it? Right? That's the question. It's like, okay, yeah, but even if he did, even if he does the things you're saying, Nick, Why? Why would he care about little of me, this speck on a macaroni on a construction piece of construction paper? I'm not letting that go. Uh, this brings us to our third point. God delegates dominion. Look with me at verses 5 through 8. There we're told that man has a high place in the order of creation, uh, just below the heavenly beings. Humanity has been coordinated as kings, according to verse 5 and are to rule over their kingdom, which God has made, uh, according to verse 6. And this kingdom is the entire earth, with all its creatures below and above, in verses 7 through 8. These verses emerge uh, actually from a very sensitive reading uh, of Genesis 1, 26 through 7. Surely the psalmist has read these because it echoes so clearly. I'll read them to you now, uh, these two verses from Genesis. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. You can kind of see that articulated here. Uh, Oxen and beasts and birds of the heavens and fish of the sea. Um, This is what God has originally said to uh, Adam and Eve when he first makes people. He tells them uh, that he is making them in his image to have dominion over all these things. And verse 27 says this, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, uh, created them. Male and female, he created them. Uh, the psalmist is essentially unpacking the idea that 
of this. We are made in God's image. Uh, as he uh, nears the end of his psalm, uh, he is dwelling after looking up at the night sky and considering where our place is in it, that God uh, still cares for us. And it must be because he has made us in his image to have dominion. Uh, and the question is, what does it mean to be in his image, to have dominion, to do this? Well, it means at least two things. Or sorry, it doesn't mean at least two things. I want to highlight a couple of things that have been posited as like what it means that we're in the image of God that are definitely not true. The first thing is this, that something about our like physicality, something about the way we look is the image of God. Uh, Philippians 2 says that Jesus, uh, that Jesus' incarnation was actually an act of his humility, not that he like transferred how he looked to become a human being, but rather that it was a step down for him to become a human, to take on a nose and hands and eyes and ears. Humans are not like God because we have noses and legs. Uh, he did not create us to look like him. That's not, that's not what uh, the image of God is, uh, according to Philippians 2. And it's also not this, it's also not our rationality. A lot of people think uh, being created in the image of God is because uh, we somehow think well, uh, that we are capable of uh, comprehending. Even the psalm, uh, you'll notice a uh, back one. Uh, he says this, that he, like, who is man that you're mindful of him? Uh, people would point out that we're the only creatures that can ask that question, uh, which is true. We are. Um, and that is a way, yes, that we look sort of like God, but that's not exactly how we bear his image. Um, Instead, we should probably be looking uh, to the context of this writer and the context of the Bible to be answering this question. So in the ancient Near East, uh, in 1979, uh, actually in Syria, a farmer actually unearthed a giant statue that uh, dated to the time of the Assyrians. And it was a Assyrian gover governor, and there's a, on it there's an Aramaic and an Akkadian inscription. And it reads this, uh, that this statue uh, is the image and likeness of the king, of this king that like is on the statue. Um, in the ancient times, what, what would actually happen is, uh, oh, and these are the two cognates of that word that, that we hear in 126 of Genesis, that we're made in his image after his likeness. Uh, exact same two words are on this statue. What would happen is, uh, in ancient Assyria, in the ancient world, uh, kings who didn't live in the city that you were in and were therefore essentially invisible to you. You couldn't see them readily. Uh, they wouldn't just be passing through or something. Uh, kings would actually set up uh, these kinds of statues all across their kingdom as an image to what would normally be invisible, right? They would provide visible representation for a distant and therefore invisible king. A similar approach is actually taken to uh, idols, uh, like actually like gods and goddesses, statues uh, in the ancient Near East. The most uh, people would understand that the idols that are in the temples aren't the god themselves. They would know this, that these idols, one, showed what the deity looked like, and two, they established a claim of divine authority over the locality and the people in it. In other words... Uh, these images showed like some sort of aspect of what God, this God was like. And they also uh, claimed authority over the people who lived there. 
Curiously, uh, the Bible uh, actually makes, the, the God of the Bible makes the opposite command, uh, that no one should make such an image for himself in the second of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. Assumedly, this is because he's already made one, right? Uh, assumedly, this is because he's already made humanity in his image at creation. He's already established his image on earth. We are it. We're the visible representation of an invisible king. Though, as I said, our physical form doesn't show us what God looks like. It doesn't bear God's image in that sense. We were created to show what God's like in his character, right? In his love, his mercy, creativity, even in his like justice and anger, uh, his righteous anger. We show what God is like, what he looks like. And we should be stewards of what God has given us, right? Just as God's just as good kings are to be over those whom they rule. Uh, So to recap, these are the three things I said we're going to talk about. These are the three things that we know about God. God works through the weak. Uh, God is mindful of man, and God delegates dominion. Here's the reality, though. If we're honest, something's kind of off about this psalm and its treatment of humanity as we think about it. Uh, Though God works through the weak, if we're honest with ourselves, we really don't like to be weak. We would rather be strong. We'd rather have it all together and life to be going well. And though God is mindful of man and cares for him, we often reject the Lord and his lordship, and we strive to put our lives as much as we can under our own control. And though God delegates dominion, uh, we don't really image him in his goodness. I just described how God is good in his love and even in his anger and in his compassion and mercy and like how many of us can say that we are that all the time just serving people and caring and never you know lying or cheating or stealing or like even you know thinking bad thoughts about other people um your roommate who walks in at 2 a.m uh and wakes you up i'm sure your first thought is like i just love my roommate uh The Bible tells us in Genesis 3 uh, that our great-grandfather Adam ate the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, uh, that we fell in rebellion against God. And even as the psalmist, possibly David, according to the superscription that comes before this, even as he writes this psalm, he writes of an idealized humanity. He writes of humanity as Genesis 1 depicts it, right? Before any of this happens, before Adam rebels, before any of the fall, before our our, our sin enters this world, humanity is supposed to look like this. The problem is, uh, even a man after God's own heart who slayed Goliath, he was not even free from sin. But there was one who, who was. There is one who has attained a life free of sin. Uh, Jesus is the epitome of God working through the weak. Uh, Again, the uh, W-E-A-K version. Uh, He lived his life as a weak vessel so that we could be empowered, so that God actually might pour out his mercy through him onto us, most clearly on the cross, right? As Jesus dies for our sins, he becomes a weak vessel, even though he could have been much stronger. He wants to satisfy the Father's wrath. Jesus is the greatest evidence of God's care for man, Romans 8 asks the question, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he also not graciously give us all things? God is so mindful of humanity that he will give his own son, uh, that he will give his own son up as a promise that he will never forsake us, that he is mindful of us. 
Uh, how could a God who would give up his son not be committed to care for us in all things? As for dominion, the author of Hebrews quotes uh, verses 4 through 6 of this exact psalm in chapter 2. And then he states this about, about these psalms. He says, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in, subject, uh, in subjection to him, but we see him for a little while who is made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by grace so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Though for a little while, Jesus was made lower than the angels. He became man. Uh, he was crowned with glory and honor because of his suffering of death. And soon he will, ser- he will, uh, he will have everything in subjection to himself. That's the promise uh, of this psalm, is that one day we will return to the way it was meant to be, that everything will be subject under our feet. Um, and that is because Jesus has already done it. Because Jesus has already actually accomplished this in his death and resurrection. He now rules over everything. And we await the day when he makes that manifest among us. He will have full reign as king upon his return. It is into this man that we place our faith. If you're here tonight and you haven't ever done that, you don't know how you feel about Jesus, I encourage you to think about this, to think about the claims that this psalm is making about who God is and what he wants to do in your life um, and, and how Jesus is actually the exemplary man who died uh, even though he shouldn't have, who has actually lived this life, who has actually been this kind of person and has died so that you can have faith in him and live. Let this reality warm your heart um, and strive to follow him uh, in his weakness, love, and dominion this week. Let's pray.